Hey, Patrice. How are you? All right. You're on you're on the road. You're on a very long road trip. I'm on a very long road trip. You're, are you still in uh, Tennessee? Right now I'm in Memphis. Or excuse me, I just left Memphis. I'm in uh, Mississippi. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's completely beautiful down here. And, I, you know, I don't know what I thought it looked like, but didn't think I, you know, expect this. And you've been doing some pretty long stretches of driving, right? Yeah, there's no other way to get to, like, Haynes, Alaska. From the Bronx. <laughs> like, I guess they have, like, you know, bankers hours, and I could hang out for three weeks. That'd be great, but I think it's about... You know, the next episode of the photo show is with Claudio Nolasco, Nolasco, and we recorded him, uh, Kai and I and Claudio, we actually recorded in your bedroom at your house. I know. It's great. (laughs) I I thought that was so funny. Like, I love that there's stuff going on in my house, photography, right? That there are people hanging out, doing stuff like that. Yeah, and that it was part of a, an even larger event of the um, Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club. Did I get that whole title right? Yeah, it's a really long title. <laughs> Basically, like, it's like hangout time. Hang out and show your photos and have a good dinner. But that's even longer than the Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club. <laughs> But they've been great events. You've had two of them, and uh, we well, we've seen what seven, eight artists. Yeah, we, and uh, the next one is going to be in July, and I haven't really like ironed out who's going to present. I don't know. I'm trying. You know, I think I need to bring in some people that we don't know already. Yeah, that would be great. It's pretty easy just to rely on your friends, but see if we can get. I want to get somebody that thinks they're a big deal up there. That's my goal. <laughs> so we can knock them down a peg. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, the, you know, you can't help but have the last person in your head when the next person sort of steps up to the plate to show their work. Yeah. So, so I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know if there's a way, I don't know if there's a way around it. But on the other hand, it's not like anybody has gone up and bombed. Um, There's, there's always something good about it. It's a healthy to have a little competitiveness. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm just saying like. I'm talking about sort of a generosity and sharing work and like a, I think the hospitality is like the great equalizer. You know what I mean? That it like brings people together in a cool way and yeah. changes the dynamic in a way that I like. Photography is already something that you generally do on your own or maybe with one other person if you're lucky. So I just like hanging out with photographers. Like I like you guys. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, it, it's great. It's great all getting together and, and seeing the work and, uh, you know, a lot of it, there's a lot of work. And, and I know um, a lot of my work was a, a good example of this, that, that, you know, really we've just been doing and not even thinking about sharing. Yeah. Well, it's not like everybody gets to publish a book yeah. every year, every six months. And so, you know, you keep your cards close to your chest. And like with your work, like I just want to say, again, like I told you before, but Right. I mean, that work is unbelievable, and I think everybody in that room 
sort of lost their breath for a minute and was like, holy shit, what is this, right? And those moments of discovering something like that are worth it. Well, thank you. It was also nice to see the some of the different things going on, too. Um, you know, we had a kind of performance poetry at the last event. Yeah, that sounds really terrible, though, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know if there's two uh, things in the world that, that performance is poetry, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. But, like, you know, it was great. It was somebody reading their songs in a cool way and playing music. And, I don't know, so I think it's open to different open to artists, whatever that means, with a capital A or a lowercase A, or a little P with photography or a big P. I just want to meet good folks, whatever that means. Right. Know? Absolutely. That, that I think that's really the way to think about it. And that's what you're doing. Uh, and, you know, we have more coming. But but what about, uh, let's talk more about your trip. Okay. What have you, uh, yeah. what have you seen? So I had, like, one of the best tour experiences in my life, like, Yesterday, I come from a really touristy town in Alaska, right? So mm. I, I kind of hate, I hate tourism to a certain degree, even though right now I'm a tourist. But uh, I had to go to Sun Studios. I have a friend down in Memphis that my life before I came to New York, I worked at a bar, right? I was a bartender and I was a music promoter and I would book band at this bar that was about 100 years old, you know. Mm. And uh, one of the hot acts that we would have come up every summer was from Memphis, this great two-piece band called Nearing It Down, and my friend Lana Nearing, um, and Reverend Neil Down, but in Tennessee, where they lived for 11 years, and Lana worked at some studios, which of course is where Johnny Cash recorded, Elvis first recorded, Howling Wolf, probably the most important, he's one of the grandfathers of the blues, right, that taught white people how to shake it, um, you know, it's like a legitimate studio, and so Lana got me a had the place to yourself a little bit the other thing we should mention is you're live streaming this whole event yeah and it's on it's actually livestream.com right yeah it's livestream.com which is broadcasting live and then it archives it which is great so i am saving all of this uh for like a longer sort of video i shudder at the top that i'm talking about video art on the photo show but um (laughs) I think that art school, as did you, so it's going to be a durational thing. Hours and hours and hours of shit, which probably nobody will ever watch. But um, I just think it's a great opportunity to talk about all kinds of stuff because I have just hours on the road. So I'm asking people to call in and read me poems or essays or just like chit chat with me like we are right now or um, tell me a story or talk about something that currently. Right, and that and that will become part of this this whole piece you're making. Yeah, and it's also kind of, I think it's cool because it'll act as a 
little piece of archive history that this is, these are the people that are in my life that matter, and this is what I was doing, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the one thing... The one thing I noticed watching is sometimes you have the camera facing out the front windshield, you know, and then sometimes you have the camera sort of half on yourself where it's um, a a bit of you driving and a bit of the scene in the car and through the windows and all that. And the ones that where it's on yourself, it, 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 it feels very intimate. I mean, sometimes you whistle, sometimes you sing, all kinds of things going on. Yeah, I don't know. I am. Right at the tail end of the selfie generation. Uh, <laughs> I like cinematic things, and I feel like this framing could be a little bit like a little bit like the world's most anticlimactic movie. Hopefully, right? <laughs> yeah. Look out, Andy Warhol. I'm coming for you. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Michael. Well, I can't wait to hear Claudio's uh, episode. I love his work, and I think beyond his being a great photographer, he's a hell of a stand-up guy. So. He, he really is, and. Uh... Very smart and well-spoken, and so, yeah, it, it'll be a good one. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Michael. Take it easy. You too. That's good. Oh, that you know what? You know, I, I always forget to say this. If you do start bursting out laughing, it's always good to lean back. Lean back so it doesn't and if you're a, a mouth breather, you know, <laughs> lean back. You know? I guess I guess we'll find out in a minute. I've been called a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, nice. Oh. Well, we are here at uh, Fort Not Brooklyn, as Patrice Helmar uh calls it. Uh, also, uh, we're here tonight for uh, the, the um, Marble Hill. Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club. Yes. That's right. And our guest is... Cla- Est, uh, Estamos Abando <laughs> con Claudio Nolasco, <laughs> un fotógrafo uh, de uh, República Dominicana. Y... Hola, mucho oh. gusto. Ah, mucho gusto. Now we're going to pick up a whole new audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's do a little bit of yeah. uh, so, playing for the Univision crowd. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, Claudio Nolasco. Welcome to Sabado Gigante. <laughs> I just had a, like this just wave of like awful television flashbacks just hit me. Oh, man. Jesus. So, yeah. yes, our, our guest is Claudio Nolasco. Nolasco. Yeah. Right. And it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're here. This was our introduction started with, uh, of course, our our main host, Claudia. Claudia, oh my God. <laughs> Michael Chauvin Dalton. Boy, I'm going to be editing a lot in this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and I am your frequent co-host, Kai McBride. And we are sitting in the bedroom of Patrice Helmar, who was once a guest and hopefully will be another guest in the future on the photo show. So welcome everyone. And uh, yeah, we're excited to, Claudio uh, no longer lives in New York. So we're glad to get him on a, while he's down here, he's going to be giving a presentation tonight at, mm-hmm. as part of the Cameron Supper Club. And so uh, we thought we'd do a, a recording in the field as it were. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I welcome. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. So you're down from uh, Hampshire College. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, this is my first year working at Hampshire College. I just started um, last fall. And uh, so I'm living in Western Mass in Amherst and, and uh, left Brooklyn about a year ago, a little more than a year ago when I moved to New Mexico. And, you know, this kind of test to see if something could happen out in the Southwest. And uh, 
it didn't. And so uh, other things happened in the, in the way, and, and now I'm here back on the East Coast. And you know, for all intents and purposes, it's been actually really amazing. Yeah, you were you were teaching in New Mexico. No, I. Um, it, it's a little bit of a convoluted story. My my partner has family there, and you know we would visit constantly. And I started photographing there, and and uh, uh, one day she came up to me and she said, uh, "If I got a job in New Mexico, would you would you move out there with me?" You know, I I, I I'm originally from the Dominican Republic, but um, I've been living in New York since 1989, and so. Um, or living in Brooklyn specifically. And, and so the idea of going anywhere and being anywhere but Brooklyn was a little bit um, uh, daunting to me. And I said, why not, right? The, mm. And uh, of course, a week later or two weeks later, she shows up and she says, by the way, I just got a job in Santa Fe and in, in New Mexico. And we, we decided to move to Albuquerque where her family lived, thinking that I would be able to find something, um, and which unfortunately didn't happen. Anything, but find something, anything. anything yeah. I mean, the place is a desert in a lot of ways. And not to, not to slag it, I really love New Mexico. I actually miss it dearly. It's a very strange thing to, mm. to say, but it, it was very, very tough going. However, it kind of gave me the opportunity to have um, uh, a residency that I wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, the cost of living is very low. We uh, ended up in this house that where the garage had been turned into a gigantic studio and darkroom. I saw pictures of that studio. Holy yeah. cow! That was. I mean, I think, I, I think everyone had envy of that studio. Oh that yeah. yeah, it, it was, was like five hundred square feet. You know, it was like a like a fifteen foot or thirteen foot sink. <laughs> You know, like connected for internet, the whole deal. And so I, I gave myself, I mean, I really it was about nine months of just very, very strict, very, very rigorous, very, very like daily um, uh, uh, work in the studio that I never could have here in New York just because I had to work every time. You know, I've been working since I was 16 and that was the first time where I didn't have a job for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that in those nine months, I was able to edit a number of, of the work that I, that I had done in graduate school and after. Um, I started two new projects um, and started the editing for, for two books, which is now three that I kind of have put together. And so I, and I credit that with the fact that I got this job at Hampshire College was I, I finally had a portfolio and I finally mm. had a rubric for presenting work and showing work and mm. putting things up on a wall that I just didn't have in my little 378 mm. square foot apartment in Brooklyn, you know? Now, when he says that 378 square feet, some of you out there might be thinking, oh boy, the poor bastard is probably <laughs> spending, you know, thousands of dollars a month to live in a hip part of Brooklyn and had a tiny little <laughs> hovel. But he had had this apartment with his mother originally since 1989, right. I guess, right? Or 87. Uh, 87. And so I won't d disclose the exact amount, but it was under $1,000. And so <laughs> uh, it was well under $1,000. And it's kind of, you know, it was that the kind of thing that, you know, people imagine like, oh, I could, if I'd moved there early enough, I could still be living in Williamsburg in my tiny little place, yeah. but, you know, at an affordable amount. So that was also part of the... It, your decision process was to give that up. It's yeah. sort of knowing that you're leaving the, that New York in a way, if you come back, you're not going to be able to go back to the New York right. you left. Right. Right. No, it very much. So, you know, I, I, I had lived in that same apartment, um, uh, for most of my life. Um, I got it once my mom moved to another place and, and it, it did lay the groundwork for me to, 
have you know the time and a little bit of extra money that otherwise I wouldn't have had, frankly, to yeah. to make work and to go to grad school and to do all these things. Was rent was not the least of my worries. It certainly was a worry, but it but it wasn't as let's say intense as it would have been in some other situation or especially a roommate situation where everybody's out of their minds. Is that place still in the family? No, it's not still in the family. Unfortunately, I I I, I uh, it's a regretful regretful story of New York and landlords and hmm. and the worst of the worst in terms of the way people treat each other, but. Um, I think that the decision in the end was actually um, a, a really good one, just in terms of like the ability to work and the ability to make things and the ability to, to just say, fuck it, and go out on the road and, and see other places and do other things. And, you know, so much of the work that I'm doing, it's, you know, it's kind of documentary style. So the idea of always being in one place for the whole of your life, I know it's fruitful for some, but for me, it started to kind of wane down. A lot of the work that I did... Um, you know, for like the, the 15 years, I'd say in the beginning, um, there was, was a Brooklyn based. And so there was a lot of work in and around Williamsburg. And one of the projects that I'm, that I worked on that I finished and that somehow I'm back to working on now is about the neighborhood of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and particularly about that kind of, um, uh, Latino community, which is still holding on by the tips of their fingers. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, but I think that the, the, the possibility of going elsewhere and seeing a different landscape and, and touching upon different ways of living. And, and even on top of that, just even the way that people kind of treat each other and talk and do all these other things made it possible for me to re reassess all this work that I had done in Brooklyn that I think I was just too close to for 25 years, frankly. I mean, it was too much. It was too much home, right? How do you, how do you speak dispassionately and critically about a place where when you're making a picture, you go downstairs and you see the guy again, right? Or you see um, uh, that corner that's changed or whatever else. And so for me, going being in New Mexico and suddenly not knowing anybody, um, get, having to get a driver's license, something I hmm. thought I'd never have to do as a Brooklyn boy, um, and all of those things kind of then going back to the work and realizing, well, is this really important? And suddenly it wasn't important, right? Like the, the, myopi the, the kind of myopic view that you have of a place because you've lived there for your whole life changes. And suddenly I was really able to think critically in a way that I, maybe I couldn't, right? Or I wouldn't allow myself to think critically that way. And it's, it's a much bigger change. It's not like going from Brooklyn to Jersey City or, or Baltimore or something like that. Uh, there's something, uh, you know, beautifully strange about that part of the country. Yeah. Well, it, you know, one of the things that I talked about, uh, and I remember calling Kai and telling him a little bit about this, and especially when I came back to visit New York, was that there were two things that really changed just formally in terms of the way that images look when I made them. And the first one was the, like the idea of verticality. It's a very different idea in mm. New Mexico. You know, most houses are not anything more than two floors, if, if that, right? It's all ranch style homes. The idea of a vista, you know, like the fact that you could see beyond onto the, onto the horizon was kind of like shocking. And then on top of that, there's this um, atmosphere plays this really interesting role in photography as, as, as I was making it here versus in New Mexico. You know, there's no water vapor in the air in New Mexico. Yes. <laughs> so there's a kind of sharpness and there's a kind of lack of depth of field that, that here it becomes dreamy and becomes kind of, you know, hazy, hazy right. and all those things. And it took a while for me to make anything of consequence there precisely because I didn't know how to handle it. I mean, I ended up in the in a forest precisely because I had these big <laughs> giant trees to deal with. And everything's a good stop and a half, two stops brighter. Exactly. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, the, those first few roles were so overexposed, it was pathetic. So you can imagine that. Uh, well, why don't we take this opportunity just to go backwards and uh, talk about uh, how you got started in photography? I mean, 
we we've had Laura Sellers on as a guest who uh, was at Cooper Union, and I know Cooper Union figures into your story, but perhaps before that, right? Mm-hmm. So can you start us in on first camera or how you got started? Why photography? Uh, so it's it's funny. I was really thinking about this last night in terms of um, putting it in a in a in context. And you know, I moved here from the Dominican Republic when I was eight years old. Um, and I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which at the time was not the bastion of hipness and, um, far uh, from it, I'm sure. Yeah. F- yeah, far from it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a very dangerous neighborhood, lots of drugs, lots of shootings, lots of gang activity, you know, um, this is the mid eighties, uh, late eighties into early nineties. So it was right at the end of the kind of crack epidemic. Um, and we had a, a bit of a heroin bump for a while there. And, um, and so, you know, like my family members got mugged and, and there were shootings in my buildings and uh, people got arrested all the time. So like when I, came, when I would come home from elementary school, the very first thing I would have to do is kind of stop about a half a block away and look around because if you got caught in a raid, everybody got taken. All the kids got taken. I mean, people's dogs got taken, right? Because they didn't know who had what on them and what was the deal. So, so suddenly coming from the Dominican Republic where I was, where I was, you know, out in the country and we're riding horses and, and, you know, being able to kind of go to the, go to the beach and do all these things, even as a kid, just like even being alone and being left to, to go out to then being in a place where I ha- didn't have that level of freedom. And on top of that, fear was a real big part of the life that we were leading. You know, I, I started drawing and painting as a kind of escapism, right? Like reading comic books and looking at art and then draw, trying to draw those things myself. And it was, that was a big part of it. So image making became a kind of escape route, right? I couldn't go outside, so I would draw the things that I wanted to see. And at first they were stupid, right? Hmm. It was, you know, Street Fighter cartoons and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all the things that now all these 35-year-olds are kind of having nostalgia about. Right. Um, but that's how it kind of started off. And then I ended up in, uh, at the high school of art and design, um, doing, uh, uh, kind of drawing and illustration. And from there I went to the Cooper union and, and was part of this program called the Saturday program, which I have a long history with. Um, and I, there I focused on painting and drawing. And at that point, um, I had gotten from my mother a little tiny, I think it was an Olympus point and shoot. Um, 35 millimeter camera and I started buying uh, black and white film and color film the cheapest I could find at the Rite Aid or something and I was using it to you know photograph my friends like all teenagers do but I was also starting to photograph the neighborhood and I was using it as reference for paintings and drawings that I was doing Um, I got accepted into the Cooper Union um, and the first two years that I was there I was a staunch you know painter this is, they have a whole foundation program yeah. there that's all about, you know, based on Bauhaus kind of ideals right. of form, color, right. all the basics and dr- yeah. drilling that into your head, right? Right, yeah. And you, you, were, we, you were lapping it up. You loved oh, it. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. It was great. It was exactly, you know, 2DD and 3DD and yeah. color classes. Color aid, but, you know, you're getting out your color aid and doing all that. Yeah, you know. you're doing that Joseph Albers exactly. cutting papers and sitting that whole thing up. So, so that was a big part for the first two years of what I was doing. I was very, very interested. I was very, very involved in it. You know, a lot of the Latino artists that I had met through the Saturday program, they did drawing and painting. And so that was a big part of who I was for a long time. And then at a certain point, I took a photo one class. I figured, well, I'm shooting with this crappy little camera. Let's step it up and let's see what I could do. Um, and, you know, I think that this, this goes well with a lot of people's other stories is the second you get into the darkroom, things change. Right? There's a very different engagement with the image. The fact that you can enlarge it beyond four by six, the detail that you can see, the kind of expression that you can see. And then slowly what I started to realize was that I was more interested in the photos I was making than the paintings I was making from the photos. 
there were other some other things there too. I think a part of it is that I'm, I'm, I'm I tend to be fairly practical, and when I look at images, I don't have a lot of. Uh, I mean, and it might I might contradict myself in a little while, but I it, you know like ideas like things of jargon and theory and all those things they didn't play a lot into what I was making, um, and so it seemed like the conversation around photography. Um, at least there with some of the professors I had, like Christine Ozinski and Gary Schneider um, and some of those folks, was sure we had theory and we talked about those things, but it was also a very practical one. Like, what are you shooting? What does it mean? What are, what are the things inside of the photograph actually saying versus what you want it to say? Um, and then how do you make those two things come together? And by the third year at Cooper, I basically, you know, I got rid of um, the painting and drawing and I haven't done it since. I went straight into photo in the last two years that I was there I was a f concentrating in photography mm. by the time I graduated I was making you know large-scale um, uh, color images I was making C prints you know the largest pictures I was printing were nine foot by ten foot did making them in strips and doing all these kind of crazy things and they were they happened to be photographs of Williamsburg right um, I was making uh, very very long exposure photographs of Williamsburg at night you know, and so at that point, you know, very young uh, in terms of my thinking was that I wanted to talk about the change that I was seeing, but how do I talk about that change without necessarily um, making it about like uh, us versus them, you know, the new people versus the old people and just talk about the, the kind of physical manifestation that I was seeing like in front of me as I went home every day. And so I thought, well, if I'm making these pictures that are three or four hours long, I get rid of anything that moves. And all we have are these facades or we have are these things that very much and also get transformed by color and all these things. So that's what I left the Cooper Union making was these kind of um, uh, beautiful, large scale color photographs. And the, the, the kind of sad story is, is that, uh, you know, I had real proficiency. I was making these really beautiful things. I had a show at Art in General or I was part of a group show at Art in General. And I left the Cooper Union completely kind of um, uh, broken just because of the conversations that I was having in terms of things like race and in terms of things like who gets to make art and, and all these kinds of things. And I ended up working construction for a year. Mm -hmm. So no photography. I just figured I'm never going to do it. So all of the sort of intellectual ideas about identity and, and art actually were overwhelming in a sense. You, you yeah. weren't sure where you were in all of this. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of that. There was a big part of what happened. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this story. And it's one of those things that like I tell the story um, not because I think that that it somehow justifies the, the the change that I did. I actually feel a lot of shame about the fact that I let things go for a long time. But um, I got a grant. Um, I got the, um, a fellowship uh, to go photograph in the Dominican Republic, and I had this kind of idea in my mind of making these pictures and making these these diptychs of landscapes and then portraits, and and you know they were going to be of my family. And again, this is another subject that repeats later on in my work. Um, and I, and I got, you know, they gave me $3,000 and they were like, go make photos, come back. We'll have a show. We'll do this thing. Now what year is this? This was in, uh, 2003. Cause I was, okay. I was 22 years old. Yeah. So 2003, I got this grant, um, and you know, bought a camera, bought film, bought a plane ticket, went to the Dominican Republic for a month. Mm. Um, and I was there photographing. I, it happened to coincide right when one of my grandmothers was passing away from cancer, and so I was making this, I showed up thinking I was going to make this very kind of, con not conceptual necessarily, but definitely with a kind of uh, rubric um, that had to do with these comparisons. And I got there and I made one photograph when I got to Igwe, which is where my family is, which is on the eastern side of the island. I made one photograph. And in, just by, because of the conversations that I was having already in the car, I realized that, that I was, I didn't know what the hell it was that I was doing. Mm -hmm. 
mm. and who it was that I, who was I in this place, right? Like, you know, I, I write about this a little bit and it's one of the things that, that it's on my website, but it's like, it's like being an immigrant, uh, especially when you leave young, it creates this weird dissonance between who you are and who you were were and then you know if you're here you're dominican and if you're back in the dominican republic you're american mm -hmm. and so that that gulf is a real problem in terms of like identifying what it is that who it is that you can make pictures of i mean I, again i go back and forth with this because i think anybody's allowed to make photographs of anybody but personally i i was making this family portrait and i was saying i i have i have authority right and then realizing that i was full of shit hmm for all intents and purposes. And so the first two weeks that I was there, I just figured I need to just live, right? I need to be with people, I need to talk to my grandparents, I need to talk to my dad, I need to like see the place. And then the last two weeks that I was there, I shot about 50 or 60 roles, right? Because then I was like, okay, I have permission, I'm just gonna react to whatever's in front of me. Long story short, I, I photographed those things, got everything developed, made these beautiful um, uh, large, you know, 30 by 40 C prints of these portraits and these landscapes and these things. Not, I didn't do the, the weird like diptych thing. I just made this very um, um, kind of sequence of images and did this thing. And as I was putting up the last photograph, which was a photograph of my grandmother, um, this, this other student who had gotten another one of these grants walked up to me and said, that's a really beautiful portrait. My grandmother's, my father's side of the, f uh, the family is very dark skinned and my mother's side of the family is more on the Spanish side, so olive skin, you know, lighter. And so um, basically the student walked up and looked at the picture of my grandmother and he says, that's a really great portrait. And I was like, oh, thanks. He goes, yeah, that's some real National Geographic shit. Ah, hmm. And I kind of looked at this guy and I just, I didn't, I, I didn't have a reaction. Like I just couldn't react and I started to take all the work down. But you also don't know what that person means by that a lot sure. either because National Geographic is, is, is a, a mark, a reference for so many people and you just don't know what they mean when they say that. Well, wait a minute. Was she topless? No. <laughs> okay. okay. No. But I think, I think that my, my part of the, and it's something that I'm still very, very conscious of as someone who does make pictures of brown and black people, is that, that the, those representations um, do come, uh, especially when they're connected to that magazine, which has a long history of exploitation and, and you know, certain aspects of like, of like just coming in and, and deciding what something is without any real kind of connection. Yeah, colonial view. Of, yeah, uh, very uh, much yeah. so. And so that for me was... You know, if you talk about the fear that I had that somehow my representation was not accurate or did not paint, let's say, and mind you, again, this I'm in my 20s, so it, mm -hmm. it, I have a very different idea of what that means now. But at that moment, it was it was kind of like if you if you wanted to punch me in the gut, mm -hmm. that was the way to punch me in the gut. Especially with all of the things you put yourself through just a few weeks earlier. Right. Exactly. And so I started to take the work down and the person who curated the show came in and was like, what are you doing? And, and basically hastily had me put up the work. And after that, for a long time, like the idea of making a portrait of someone was, was basically taboo for me. Like I couldn't, I, I wasn't able to, to make heads or tails of it because of that power of representation was really dangerous as far as I saw it. Yeah, it gets complicated in, in the way that these the photographs are constructed. I was just having a conversation uh, yesterday with two Koreans who are planning on, they've been looking at uh, photographs from the 19th century and uh, all of these photographs of people going to Korea. And, you know, you've got 
the family lined up outside in front of some house and they're in, you know, quote unquote native costume or whatever. And uh, they want to make new work that references the fact that this is ongoing and has been a way that, you know, this colonial view of everything. And yet, you know, part of the challenges was, well, how do you, how do you do that without just recreating it? You know, so like, how do you, how do you make the portrait where it's not that kind of uh, pinning the butterfly against the exotic wall, right? Right. And a lot of that has to do with who's your audience and how sophisticated are they? Because this kid was probably just reacting to the fact that the only other time he saw someone who looked like your grandmother happened to have been in National Geographic. Right. right? Precisely. That that was the point. Right. you know, you don't know where that person is coming from. Right. right. But I, I think I think the lesson for me there was that was then was then either a how do you deal with that and uh, open yourself up to the fact that interpretation is going to be variform and it's going to be a, a, along a spectrum depending on people's background. And then also, how do you make images that push the reading beyond, let's say, the initial kind of surface of it? Right. So what else is in the picture that will help someone not just automatically connect to that to mm. you know and again it's 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 a real problem but it's also it's also it's also kind of freeing in some senses because you get to forget about these kind of essentialist arguments of like of authority you mm. get to just say fuck it let's make some pictures and then with the power that i have is in the editing and putting things together that's the ideal way to work right yeah, yeah. you know get the photos done make those decisions later yeah and and it's and for me it took a long time for me to get to that point it took a really long time, um, and I think part of that comes from uh, insecurities, right? In terms of the way that the way that images that I was making, and some of that came from not necessarily having the language yet, right? Like not having enough exposure to that work. Some of that came from from realizing that the work that I was seeing very much came from a Western perspective, um, um, and so that and so that Western perspective was problematic in terms of those representations and then so when again am i just remaking those pictures if i'm making an image that looks like it so mm-hmm. growing you know we, we jumped uh, way ahead when you were talking about you know how we how you got started and all but and growing up were you encouraged to kind of really uh, assimilate and and be as american as you can be where was there a strong sense of tradition in your household it, it, it's it's sort of strange i i it's that's a hard question for me to answer because on on the one hand, yeah, you know, on the one hand, you were supposed to learn the language right away, and you were supposed to like be part of the society and do the whole thing. On the other hand, you know, Williamsburg in the late '80s to like let's say the late '90s, mid to late '90s was was comprised of a lot of enclaves, right? You have Dominican enclaves and Puerto Rican enclaves, and you had Italian enclaves and Polish enclaves and Mexican enclaves, and so you really could survive without assimilating, right? And so. You know, and 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 then on top of that, there's all these other things about about like growing up in New York City, which is like, yeah, you have your little enclave, you have your little group, but the second you step out and you start taking the train, then you get assaulted by the rest of the world. And so, how could you? You know, by the time I was like 15 or 16 years old, I had blue hair and I was wearing big stupid pants, <laughs> and I was going to punk rock shows and I was doing all these other things that didn't go with being Dominican. And there's a photo that you'll send us to post with the show of that? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not ashamed of that time of my life. I think it was actually a really great time of my life. But let's let's just say that the fashion choices should stay in the past. Yeah, there's there's that stuff did not age well. Um, <laughs> but uh, the so this show goes up and yeah. you know, despite your having issues possibly with it, and then you say, oh man, 
construction sounds pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I got out of there and I just, I was, I was drifting in the wind and, and mm. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, except that I knew that I didn't want to do art. I just, mm. I thought that, I thought that there was something about that that was um, destructive for me for a long time, you know, and uh, mind you, the person that I went to work construction for was somebody who worked at uh, the Saturday program. They were building a house with their partner and their partner basically trained me and, you know, I worked with them upstate New York in, in uh, Germantown, New York for a year building this house right on the on the Hudson. Um, and so like art was always there and we were always talking about art, but I wasn't making it. I, I was yeah. I was cutting wood and I was running up and down stairs and I was getting yelled at for not doing things fast enough. You know, like just really having a, like a hands-on position. And then after that, I Popping kind of, ibuprofen, as I recall. Yeah, popping ibuprofen, uh, uh, sitting on a ridiculous massage chair so we wouldn't be lumps the next day and... And, you know, doing real physical labor, which which I think maybe was a way for me to also just get out some of that anxiety and some of mm. those things. And and then a, a year after that, I got a job at the Saturday program at the Cooper Union as um, being an office manager there. And they also hired me to teach one of their classes. Yeah. Can you just give a little bit of background on the Saturday program? Sure. So uh, I'll give you the spiel as, as, as far as I can remember it. Uh, so the Saturday program was started by Cooper Union students in 1968. Uh, it is a free not-for-profit. Uh, arts program that's open to high school students from uh, the five boroughs in New York City. Um, and so they teach a number of classes from painting and drawing. Uh, now they have sound design classes. Um, and on top of that, they teach a class called the portfolio prep class, which I was a part of as a student. And so I went back and I was, I, I was helping run the office, but I also was teaching on Saturdays this portfolio preparation class. And I did that for six years, mm. um, you know, helping all these students get into school. We were still shooting slides when I started doing that work. So I was like shooting slides of portfolios and reproducing artwork and doing all these things. So photography was always kind of just there, um, even if it was just reproduction and, and just even seeing the shows at the Cooper Union, right? Somebody right. would graduate and you would be there and you would go see their show. Did you have access to the dark rooms while you were at the Saturday program? I think I could have if I really wanted to. Everybody's really was always really amazing at the dark room, but I didn't, and I I, I stayed away. I think part I was still I was. It's not that I was necessarily dealing with those things, but I, I for me photography had shifted, and so I was really interested in teaching and being really on top of that. And I and I was doing all this other work, you know, editing videos for artists and setting up crazy like movie setups for people. You know, like I would do all this like. Um, programming work and, and hardware work to kind of like uh, get people set up with with uh, servers. And all. I did everything technical that you can imagine that could be associated with those things, including setting up printers and helping people get equipment and do those things, except I wasn't making pictures for gotcha. a long time. Eventually, I got myself a digital camera and that kind of got the ball rolling. Mm. Right. I start. I got a I got a an, an Olympus 510. I think it was, you know, just like a four three weird little camera that looked like my six seven format that I used to shoot before. And mm. um, I started making pictures again in the neighborhood and I started photographing my family members and doing that kind of thing. And then it, it started to evolve. You know, I went through a very strange period of like the, the kind of flicker madness mm. that was happening in the in the mid 2000s. And then I started looking at the photographs again more seriously. Right. Like, mm. well, well, why do I keep going back to this when I could be painting and drawing, which is what I'm teaching? Right. And I would never do it. I'd go home and I'd have supplies and the shit would have dust <laughs> on it. Right. But the photographs I was making over and over again. Huh. You know, I, I imagine when you're having these these kind of art crisis, identity crisis issues, you know, so you, you leave Cooper Union, you go into construction. There was a commitment to be an artist at a point and then you give it up and, and you're not doing it anymore. What were your 
parents thinking all this time? Like, where were they at the very beginning when when you were thinking of being a a painter? Well, I mean, the idea of being a painter to my father was um, um, the same as as punching him in the eye. Mm. You know, um, the day that I got into the Cooper Union, um, my mom. Well, there's there's what we kind of call the the underground Dominican system, which basically is like if you tell one person within 20 minutes, everybody knows in the entire country and you start getting phone calls back. (laughs) From the Dominican Republic. And so I remember the phone call back. <laughs> and I remember hearing my father yelling oh boy. Uh, over the line saying, like, what are you doing? Why are you letting him do this? He's not going to make any money. He was a do- he's a doctor. And so for him, the idea of doing anything but being a doctor was like a slap in the face. Hmm. So my mom is great. And she, of course, worried. And she had her... You know, she had her anxieties about what it meant to do that. You know, a lot of us in my family went straight to doing things like factory jobs or doing vocation work, you know, driving taxis or fixing cars or doing this and that and the other. Not a lot of people went to college. I mean, most most of them didn't until this the generation that's a little younger than me. And so that was scary, but it was also like, why wouldn't you do it? You're in New York. If anything is going to be able to happen, it'll happen there. And one of the nice things about Cooper, uh, especially then, and I guess maybe again now, is that it was free. So yeah. it wasn't like you were going into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to go yeah. into some art school and, you know, somewhere yeah. else, right? And, I, and the whole time that I was at Cooper, you know, part of the Saturday program, which I'll, which I'll explain a little bit more, is that they don't hire professional teachers. They hire students to teach their classes. And so that meant that the entire time that I was at the Saturday program or at the Cooper Union, those four years, I was teaching. I was working 20-something hours a week prepping and teaching classes. And so that made it so that I had a little bit of extra money in my pocket, that I had a, uh, um, you know, a community of people that I could show work to and go into their studios and talk to them and do this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so the support system was really there. So that, that must have been a little bit of a roller coaster ride for your father, I imagine, then, right? So- Teaching it seems more legit, I mm-hmm. imagine, as a job. Constructions probably seem more legit. He must have been, you know, it, there must have been some back and forth about the direction. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, by the time I kind of showed up to the Dominican Public in 2003 to do this project and, and that the fact that I had gotten a grant to do it, I think it didn't allay his fears. Um, but I think it, he was able to kind of step back and, be, and then be supportive, because for him, it was like, well, if this is possible, he, you know, th- again, this is something you grow up in a place where everybody's poor and people farm. I mean, my dad's a doctor, but he, he had a little farm and he would go in the afternoons and plant stuff. It was part of like subsistence living to some degree, right? You like even, even as a doctor earning money and having a car and doing other things, the reality is that the, the Dominican Republic economically is volatile. And so you did all these other things to fix yourself up. So if he saw it as these different streams, then it made sense to him. I might have missed it. Who did you move here with? With my mom. Just your mom? Just okay. my mom. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my, my mother's entire side of the family is in the U.S. with a couple of exceptions. Mm-hmm. All the aunts and uncles um, are here, and they're all over the East Coast. They're in New York. They're in New Jersey. They're in Florida. Uh, my father's almost entire side of the family, and I can't think of anybody who actually lives here, stayed in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so when I go back, I stay with, with him right. and, the, and that family. Oh, okay. And here it's all my mm-hmm. mother's side of the family. So we're, we're split geographically that way. Okay. So you were, you were teaching at Cooper. Yeah. I mean, I was teaching these classes as an undergraduate the whole time. So that was, that was interesting, right? It's like, here I am, I'm in, char- I, you know, in charge, quote unquote, and I'm teaching and I'm doing these things. And on top of that, I'm going to school for free. There's it was a scholarship. I mean, it, it is a scholarship situation in the fact that you get the opportunity to go there. I think it's, it's something that 
I talk to a lot with my students now, especially those Latin, students of like a Latino background, and, and uh, anybody, especially who's of a working class background, is that there's, there's always that pressure of making sure that you have some kind of financial stability. And that then pushes people to go into these, into these places. A lot of the Latino students at Cooper that I went to school with, which, I mean, it wasn't a lot of them, but those that I remember with, for, with a couple of exceptions, they all went into graphic design for precisely those reasons. Yeah. yeah but, you know, one thing I think about that, because, um, you know, my childhood, I grew up with single mom and, uh, for most of my life, and she had jobs like, you know, she, most, she worked construction, she worked uh, in restaurants, she, you know, it was later on after she'd been waitressing for years and years that she was then a hostess. And like that was, oh, you're moving on up. Now you're the hostess. You don't have to run around with plates of food as much. But from thinking about this, and I've thought about this as well as with uh, students who are have pressures to like make something of themselves or, you know, like the, the immigrant story of, you know, we'll have the terrible job so that you go to school and get the good job. Right. But I think also like for me and maybe for you, you kind of were free to go to art school or to become an artist because most of your, you know, like looking at my mother, she wasn't doing skilled labor. She had a job at a restaurant and you could go off to art school and still get a job at a restaurant. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's a little different having a doctor and as a father, but in, in some ways it's like the expectation isn't, you know, you can almost bucket a little bit and be like, you know what, I, you know, I can go do this. And if it doesn't work out, I can do what you did. I can go work construction or get a job. You know, I, I waited, I bust tables and I did things on the, so there, if you, if you don't get trapped into that, into the cycle of you're going to lift the whole family up kind of right. guilt trip, which I know a lot of people have, and it's, that's, it's real then yeah, I think in some ways you might be more free than someone who grew up with in a middle class uh, family with everyone doing everything yeah. so precisely, you know, like where your brother and everyone else went off and became lawyers and doctors and then and you're the fuck up. And this way you're like, well, you know, I'm doing this other thing and if it doesn't work out, I can, you know, go get the blue collar job, right? No, and and I, I mean, for me at a certain point, that was the decision basically. It was like, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, at the very least, I have this degree and maybe I can make it work in some kind of office way or whatever else. And but, you know, and not that I'm not that it's worked out in, in the, the grander scheme of things in terms of like being famous or anything else. But it's worked out in terms of like actually having been a viable way of, of like having a life and having a life that that where I'm making things and where I'm interested and where I'm. Uh, in a community of other artists and other photographers where where it's really fruitful that way. And so I think that that's also a lesson that I'm trying to to kind of give to those students of mine now that are going through those same things. It's like you have to temper expectation and be realistic and be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to automatically then say you have to be a lawyer in terms of doing this. Like, you know, I'm not rich by any by any stretch of the imagination, but I like to think that uh, the decisions I have made have given me a kind of um, uh, intellectual freedom that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I, you know, if I had to do it again, I would do it again, precisely for that reason. Like I get to make images that I'm interested in and that I want other people to see. Mm -hmm. And that it seems like for the most part, other people see and say, holy shit, there's something to see here. Or there's something to talk about. And what else could you ask for? Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah, it'd be great if somebody walked up to me and gave me a wad of hundreds and said, 
I want this over my couch. But it's almost more interesting to think about how does the photograph as a kind of uh, medium of communication and language, how does that work for me to make something where I can tell stories and tell narratives, which is basically where the work has gone, right? Mm -hmm. And so that transition, I think, was the really important one. And sometimes that transition happens when you have to live a life that where you go in other avenues and you come back. I mean, this this really well-known artist um, that, I, that I went to visit when I was at the Saturday program, um, Jose Morales, he's up on 116th Street in in, um, uh, in Spanish Harlem. He taught. He one day put down his paintbrush and did not come back to his studio for like I think something like 11 or 16 years. And he went and worked construction. And then one day he said, "Okay, I'm done." And he walked back to his studio and he started making paintings again. I mean, holy shit! <laughs> like, who can say that they that they have the freedom to do that other than people who do this kind of work? And of course, you can now tell these students that if they do well enough, maybe one day they will be a guest on the photo show. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I sing it from on high. Very good. Yeah. So, um, how long was it between undergrad and graduate school? For um, you? Six years. Okay. So I graduated in 2004, and I got into uh, the Columbia program in 2010. Um, and so it took that this long. This is where our timelines converge. Yes, <laughs> this is this is where I met the man in the myth that is Kai McBride. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Where's my five dollars? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is how you're gonna get those stack of hundreds exactly. into your hand. Yeah. 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 You like False smooth voice. smooth out my voice, and yeah, they exactly. make me sound yeah, a little right. bit a little bit more velvety. I'm gonna make that sound a little higher exactly. and <laughs> screechier. <I know. laughs> This is the Alvin and the Chipmunks <laughs> version of the photo show. But uh, I, as I recall, the the work that you applied with, nothing you've said so far rings a bell to me of what I saw in the portfolio you applied with. So what did you wind up applying with to graduate school? Yeah, so I applied with I applied with with um, with two bodies of work. Um, one of which was a kind of um, it's funny I haven't thought about it in so long. One of which was a kind of America project. I was traveling um, at the time. I was my partner and I were going to New Mexico and Kansas City, and we had been going on all these other little road trips. And so I was photographing. Uh, it was a lot of landscape work, um, which was black and white. It was done digitally and printed digitally, but it was um, uh, kind of black and white work. Really, really worked and really um, beautiful. Um, and then I was also making um, these very formal uh, construction, again, Williamsburg pops up again, these construction sites in Williamsburg, mm -hmm. except they were these very formal, almost painterly, you know, just this side of abstract kind of um, uh, portraits of these construction sites as they were going up. Mm -hmm. um, and so those were the two bodies of work that, that I presented. And, you know, again, it, it, very technical, very formal work, very, um, you know, well put together. I, I think it took me a while before, I, before real content started to become part of the work. Not that these were fluffy or anything like that, but that I think that they relied a lot on the fact that, that you know, I can, I can do shit on a computer, mm. you know. Um, yeah, I think I'm trying to, I remember now that there were, I, maybe it was the New Mexico stuff that mm -hmm. was like, sub like feeling of kind of suburbs or but with right. everything you know not robert adams but certainly in the neighborhood right of like these kind of and yeah and it was curious to like oh there's this you know kid from yeah south williamsburg area and what are these photographs you know so, right yeah, yeah. And, and and it was a real departure for me to do that kind of work you know i had lived in that was the exotic landscape it was it really was and yeah. for me it was i mean it was shocking right like I, I lived in new york for so long and this is going to make me sound like a rube but, you know, like going out into the country and realizing that there weren't sidewalks or in other <laughs> certain places was shocking to me, yeah. right? 
And so there was there was a big part of that work which was all about this uh, uh, almost naive discovery of how fucking <laughs> yeah. strange the rest of the country. <laughs> I'm is. still not used to that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, it was just like it's just like shocking to me. Even yeah. now, I mean, I, I've been more places and and I can't believe it. And. Yeah. And so there was a big part of that, that there was this, it wasn't kind of, it wasn't an ironic view of the U.S., but it was, it really was sort of like a, do you believe this? Right. <laughs> like, and it, they were weird and they did have that kind of Robert Adams, maybe slightly, like not quite as, as like dead as Lewis Baltz, but, mm. but, but there certainly was a, and with a little bit of a kind of ironic twist to them where signage and things like that were getting in the way or, or patterns would, would repeat or somehow the landscape would be. Um, uh, trampled underfoot. So there was a big part of that, you mm -hmm. know, that was the, the eye-opening kind of travel. I remember when friends of mine moved out to Oklahoma and I was talking to them, I said, well, so, you know, what's it like? What's the weather like out there? And she said, air conditioning. <laughs> no, <laughs> nobody ever right. gets out of their car right. or they go from car to mall to home to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the idea that I couldn't pop down to like a bodega <laughs> and get and get you know a yoohoo or something in the middle of the night was like like it kept me up at night you know it's like uh i remember being in kansas you have to plan ahead yeah you have to plan ahead <laughs> i remember being in kansas city and and you know uh, to go pick something up would take like half an hour because you'd have to drive there and i and i just i couldn't i almost couldn't fathom it. i mean it sounds really really stupid when you think about it but i think that 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 tells you or at least i mean it was it was um if anything it tells you just how much in new york i was for the longest time mm. and so how much that those avenues were opened once i started going elsewhere um, and then the other work again were were very kind of formal color um, uh, almost abstract pieces that were all these like construction site facades and places that I would sneak into and make these. And they were, they were kind of gestural and beautiful. And, and, you know, they, there was something about those that where for the longest time, and this is something else that happened when I was at Columbia was that I was, I came in really doing color photography again. Mm. And by the time the end of the first semester of the first year had gone, had gone by, I had switched completely to black and white. And it's only really now that I'm making color pictures again for a project that no one knows about because I just only started shooting it this year. Mm. Um, uh, but for the longest time, it was very colorful, very formal, very like attentive to like you know, textures and this kind of thing. And again, with this kind of ironic view of the, of America, the work that I was making. And uh, mostly digital. Too. And mostly digital. Yeah. Uh, well, completely digital for the yeah. longest time until, okay. um, until about uh, midway or maybe the end of the first semester at Columbia, I, I decided that the work that I was making needed that next bump up in terms of quality and being able to make some prints that were a little more interesting or larger or whatever else it's you know it's it's the the dick wagging that always happens when you get to art school is if you can't make it, it well the joke at cooper was if you can't make it good make it big and if you can't make it big make it red and <laughs> i couldn't make my work red so i had to go ahead and try to make it maybe a little bigger and so i thought well okay so i'm looking at you know i'm looking at alex soth and i'm looking at like joe meyerowitz and i'm looking at all these other people uh to randomly pick two two people who made large color photographs and was thinking about, well, where can I go? How do I do this? Um, and then the options were to step up to something like a 5D, right? Or a 5D Mark II, or whatever it was, or maybe to go back to using color film. Mm. Um, and so I started photographing with both to see what I could make with both. And at a certain point, there was something about the speed, and I know this is kind of a trope now of like talking about the difference between film and digital, but there was something about the speed of shooting um, with film that 
allowed a, a certain, um, um, you know, reciprocity with what it was that I was making pictures of, right? It took me ap away from it a little bit. I wasn't able to chimp and look at the back of the camera. And so at that point, I, dis I made a decision. I was like, well, let's, let's go back to film and see what happens, right? We have an Imacon. We have these things that I normally wouldn't, would never be able to have access to. Um, and I went back to film because of the rendering, because of the way that things look, and because of the amount of time that, that, that it needed between when I took a picture and between when I could actually see it. Um, and then halfway between that, I started, um, I started photographing in Williamsburg again, right? I started making this other project. And I went out with color film, and I think on, on Tom Roma's prompt, I took a, like a roll of two of black and white. And I was walking around in the neighborhood. I, I used to do these kind of crazy, long, concentric, concentric circles around the neighborhood where I would go down the same streets over and over again and then maybe turn in a different place just to kind of create a map of where I was going, what I was photographing, who I was photographing. And at a certain point, there's just, there was this window that I had photographed about six times. It was in front of a Puerto Rican salon. Um, and they had flags and they had um, these beautiful aloe plants and these purple pots. And they, it was like the right time of day with that golden light. So you had this like explosion of this beautiful color and all this stuff. And I had made that picture about 10 times. And then at a certain point, I went back, except that I had black and white film in the camera. And I went to take the same picture and I stopped myself and I was like, wait, here I am, I'm not no longer shooting color, which again, I was a painter, right? So I have this, I'm like really, sen I was really sensitive to what color was doing or how color was reading or even just how it made me feel, to be frank. I mean, it felt good. And suddenly I have black and white film. I have HP5 in the camera. This is the dorkiest part, right? When you start talking about all the film stuff. <laughs> yes, and, uh, <laughs> and which then, uh, developer were you, gonna be, were you planning to use with well, that HP5? Yeah, Please tell me you pull process. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> so, but, I, but uh, you know, ep epiphanies, if we're going to call it that, come in sometimes in the, at, at the strangest moments and sure. that you realize that maybe something you were, are doing is is even though you think is a different gesture, it's actually just kind of spinning your wheels and you're doing the same thing over and over again because there's a certain amount of comfort in doing that. And so here I am shooting the same goddamn window with black and white field in time and I stopped myself and I said, okay, so the color isn't here, so what am I photographing? And I realized that I was photographing nothing, right? That, yeah, there were these symbols and these things that I recognized as being part of the neighborhood, but what I was really making pictures of was these kind of color explosions, these color situations. And so when that happened, color film went out the window because I realized that it was a crutch. Yeah, the funny thing is I see, I get to see more the inverse of that uh, every semester in my photo two class when, I, when they get to shoot color. And I, I warn them all, like, don't go out and photograph a bunch of orange cones. <laughs> right. Don't photograph plastic flowers. Don't, please don't like just get, you know, over absorbed with the fact that it's all this beautiful color that you can come back with these super saturated photographs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all the things we've been talking about for all, sem all the semester, don't throw them out the window. And yet, you know, people can't help themselves. It's yeah. like, it's like this new homing beacon, you know, like, ooh, it's like being a hummingbird or something. Yeah. And you see like the bright, colorful things like, ooh, well, let me see what this looks like in film. But, uh, but yeah, then at some point you have to figure out how the color is working for you and right. how to like, you know, make it part of the photograph and not just because it, it's bright and vibrant and yeah. you're making a painting. Well, isn't Tchaikovsky's famous quote about uh, Eggleston, he was able to make the blue in the sky the same thing? Uh, I don't know that quote. No, yeah, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, yeah I hope that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Google. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not famous enough, but then again, uh, talking to a black and white photographer, maybe I didn't, haven't memorized it. 
from that moment on, then the work shifted quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it, things like I started to get closer, right? I started to think about more clearly about what it was exactly that drew me to an image, right? Whether it was it was a kind of social concern that was part of the work that I was making. Was it because someone was a character? Was it because uh, this was some place that was that was full mm-hmm. of all these aspects of memory that I was trying to maybe. Uh, work out through the images and and so the the work that I'm talking about now is if you go to my if you go to my website claudionalasco.com Claudio Claudio <laughs> <laughs> we, we will have it linked yeah. we will have it <laughs> if you go, it's the project called um sodad and and you know the, the name from that project comes from uh, a cesaria Ibora song uh, of the same name mm. um and the song is all about you know that word sodad doesn't have a direct english translation but basically it kind of it it's not quite nostalgia it's something else and it's this idea it's almost this idea that you can't come home again right it's like no matter what you do it's always going to be different than what you remember it and and sometimes what you remember actually isn't true or it might be a a fiction or it might not be fiction it's this kind of thing and so i started making these pictures and started photographing and i and i i was i photographed um in that area of williamsburg uh, in the south side and a little bit at the north side um for i mean now for about the past four years and have finally edited that, edited that into a book and kind of put it together. But it took me a long time to come back to actually make images where I started to realize, or at least what became important was in the editing process after shooting and shooting and shooting these things over and over and over again. I mean, my the contact sheets are embarrassing, right? Because it's like the same door, the same place, the same person a bunch of times over and over again. Was that um, when the color went away that there was a real kind of pin pinpoint let's say motif that kept popping up which were these guys who some of which I I was familiar with and some of which um, I had met through other people but I wasn't really friendly with in the neighborhood and the fact that here they were they were these kind of the last remaining remnants of this cohort that I had grown up with of these people that I had been with and they were the ones that were holding on somehow some of that having to do with like you know apartments and all these things that are that are passed down through families and so these guys became um, these metaphors for for something that remains that is really either shouldn't be there or is not wanted right and so then that goes back to that you know one of the things that one of the things that i talk about when i write about the work is i read i read um, um a tree grows in brooklyn and it's that very first paragraph uh where uh, there's this allusion to the idea of the tree of heaven right because that's the tree that grows in brooklyn it's a chinese sumac it's this weed that then grows into this massive tree and one of the one of the sentences in the in the paragraph says you know, uses that tree as a kind of metaphor. And, and, and basically it says like, it grows out of concrete and trash heaps and they would be beautiful except that there's too many of them, right? And so that all, when I read that and when I was thinking about that Cesaria Bora song about the idea that home is gone no matter what you do. Um, and then I was, I was looking at these portraits of these young men who I had grown up with and seeing them hanging out in the corner, you know, basically not necessarily being aimless or not having jobs or anything else, but being out of sorts with the place, right? Being these kind of uh, uh, sore thumbs, considering the, the rest of the construction that was going up, right? Like Williamsburg has this really particular, uh, I think, idea now in, in, in where it was always this kind of hipster paradise, right? Where the beards grow long and the fedoras multiply and all these kinds of things happen and there's real money and there's real privilege and this all these things but there's still this really interesting part of the community which is subsumed quite a bit but which is still there which is like a very puerto rican very dominican very mexican um kind of point of view um and so i that 
when those things came together, then suddenly the project became something for me important mm -hmm. in that I was in that I was making pictures that it seemed like no one else was really making of Williamsburg, which was not the pictures of the new and the hip and the happening and the vice magazine sort of situation. But here were these folks who who were ignored otherwise. And so that became a really kind of important anchor for the rest of the things that I ended up doing afterwards. And that was in your thesis show, right? And that was in my thesis show. It was a combination of that and a couple of other things. But yeah, it was a number of those portraits were in my thesis show. And mm -hmm. um, some portraits that I took of this um, Puerto Rican family who lived in Williamsburg and had to leave because they couldn't afford the rent and ended up in Geneva, New York, mm -hmm. were part of that, uh, uh, of that uh, kind of setup as well. And then uh, um, from there, you know, um, we moved to New Mexico. Although you're skipping over uh, Pratt. I am skipping over Pratt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. No, it, um, when, okay, fine. Good. Thank you. Thank you for calling me out on basically erasing two years of my life. Exactly. Come on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so once I graduated. I mean, look, there's, I mean, some of the people that be listening to this will also be going, okay, I've got out of grad school. Then what do I do? I have to move to New Mexico? Or, no, yeah. You know? you're, you're completely right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really right. I, um, after I graduated from uh, Columbia, I took a job at Pratt Institute um, as the, basically I was running in their dark rooms. Um, so it was me and then a staff of four uh, techs and we ran there. I mean, it, Pratt's setup is, is amazing. They have all this space and they, they are really well um, uh, taken care of. You know, Stephen Hilger, who works there, um, has done a kind of bang up job, like really getting the place funded and really getting changes happening. Um, and so I worked there for two years um, and they were, they weren't the easiest years. Um, you know, there was a lot going on personally and in terms of the job. Um, and I was still just photographing in Brooklyn and kind of making work. And I think that the, that time was a bit of a catalyst for then what happened afterwards. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in those two years, I, you know, the, the anxiety of being in New York city and the living in the same situation, what kind of work am I making? Where is this going? Uh, the difficulties of the job dealing interpersonal stuff that is always part of anywhere you work. And uh, you got to, uh, come up with a, a new class and teach a class there. Too. That's right. And, and thank you again for reminding me. I, I really am. I, there's a part of me that I think, I think has moved you're blocked, on from you're that. Blocking. I am blocking. <laughs> um, I did come up with a new class. So in the time that I, when I graduated from Columbia, um, uh, I got a, I got a grant from Columbia um, for a, a decent amount of money. And mm. uh, they give it out once a year to someone who has, um, you know, demonstrated that they uh, helped the school and that they're like, that they were like a, a live body there trying to help everybody else out. And so I was nominated for this, for this award. And when I graduated, I had this like chunk of cash. And so I was able to buy some equipment. I bought an Imacon. I got new computer set up, all these kinds of things. And so I was really, really then really kind of like in this in this wave of just being able to make work. Right. That's the second time we mentioned Imicon. So it's it's a high end film scanner. Yeah, it's a it's a really, really high end film scanner. It's people people will murder you for one. I mean, they they're they're a big deal in terms of just the usability of it and what it means if you're still shooting film and you want to work in this kind of hybrid mode, right? If you shoot film because you like the rendering of it, you like the way how it captures light and 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 uh, everything else and then but on top of that then work digitally in terms of having the image in Photoshop and print out your work digitally and so in those two years after I graduated from Columbia 
I, I, I got a good setup. I really got a good setup and I got this really kind of amazing way of scanning black and white film. And I have this whole rigmarole, which maybe one day I'll put up on a YouTube channel so people can see how to do it. But the pictures end up looking that and a a good mixture of using some, you know, some of these other third party rips and things like that to print black and white in a very neutral fashion with good papers and everything else. It gets me pretty close to, um, uh, a uh, silver gelatin print. Not, it's not never going to be quite the same. There's never going to be quite the, the same luminosity, but it gets me really close. And it means that I can print in a much larger fashion than I could otherwise. And so based on those things that I had taught myself, I then taught a class at Pratt that was um, called um, uh, Digital Monochrome. And uh, we uh, went through the whole year or through the whole semester teaching how to scan, how to make things from digital cameras, and then how to print using things like like Quadtone and how to print using uh, uh, the John Cohen black and white inks. And I mean, it was a very involved, very technical class. The students did a bang up job. They did like this amazing, amazing prints by the end. And so that was that was really great because it, it was the first official class that I was teaching. And I also got to teach at Columbia. Um, I yeah, taught, taught a, a photo one class. I taught a summer. photo one class, which, which you know, basically as, as all of us who have come from the Tom Roma, uh, from being involved with Tom Roma and seeing him teach and being, that's like a, that's, that's basically someone saying, yes, you're, you're, you're with us. You know, it's <laughs> like someone rolling out the red carpet, being able to be in that room and to have that role mm. and to teach in a very similar fashion, of course, and to go into the dark room and really have people's work evolve through. And it's a shorter semester during the summer. And, and it was amazing. You know, it was, I, I, it couldn't have been the, uh, they, there could not have been a better way for me to leave New York was to have those two classes as part of what I had to take with me. Yeah, as I recall, in fact, that your partner went ahead and you wound up staying in New York longer so that you could teach that class, that yeah. summer class, and then pack up all of your belongings and ship them out to New Mexico. And uh, another thing you bought, as I remember, from not just the Emicon and the new computer and setup, but you also went on this, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, you went on the kind of role of buying a lot of photo books too, right? Oh, yeah which some of them got lost in shipment out to New Mexico, which is really a sad story, right? Where's the, where's the list that you have of where, like, where you should poke Claudio? Where, where does it hurt? Most? Yeah, I had this. I, um, I've gotten, I, you know, uh, through actually, and it's, it's actually great that you reminded me about, about Pratt. Um, there's a fellow at Pratt right now. His name is John O'Toole, and he's, he runs um, Oren Beg Press. Yeah, we'll probably try to get uh, John on here at some point. Yeah. yeah, he listens, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I mean, he he's amazing, and he's one of the best people I've ever met. And he is also, you know, ver- verifiably insane about photo books. And I think that mm-hmm. it um, that has, you know, I've been infected with that same kind of uh, uh, interest in it. And you and I both did his interleaves project. That's right. Too, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We both printed his interleaves and, um, and I've done, I was in another book of his, which was a kind of compendium of artists that he put together called no nay, never, no more. Um, you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, John can do no wrong. And so if, if he needs my work for anything, like I don't even ask any questions. Like he's really that uh, amazing. He's a young guy. He's like 26 or something, 26, 27. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he kind of, uh, kicked, kicked me a little bit to like start thinking about, especially after coming through Tom's program, 
where his books are such a big part of the conversations that we have on a constant basis. Mm. Um, it, it, there was a bit of a disconnect there where I thought, well, let me make work for the wall, not really thinking about the fact that maybe the work that I was making should always have belonged in a book to begin with, that that was maybe the, the better way to contextualize it mm. was in sequence and in terms of narrative and story and all these kinds of things. And so John was a real catalyst for that, like, you know, constantly showing me books, having this conversation. I started buying all these crazy books. I started doing all this stuff. Uh, unfortunately, in the move to New Mexico, the uh, U.S. Postal Service uh, lost more than half of my collection that wow. I had put together over two years. Yeah, oh. it, it's it's a painful, painful, painful story because oh. I had all these great books and and I and I started writing classes based on the idea of teaching a book. I actually just taught a photo book class. Mm. Um, at Hampshire College, and uh, I'm going to have all the videos of the students flipping their books that right. they made mm-hmm. up in a, in a couple of days. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and there's all these, I mean, it's like it's something that I've really kind of latched onto and I'm really interested in, and now everything that I work on is basically um, with the book in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and actually, the presentation I'm doing tonight here at Patrice's is uh, I'm going to show a couple projects as bookends just to talk about what I was doing, and then I'm going to show two books. I'm going to show the book from the Dominican Republic, work and then the book from a kind of weird side set of images um, called uh, Surplus City. That's the working title. And it's um, it's 35 millimeter um, shot with a really crappy camera where I had no control over focus or any of the other two, like none of the things that I'm technically really like involved with. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do any of it. And so it was really about just looking and very diaristic. And now that's become this other little book that I'm trying, I'm tr- shopping and trying to get published. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John was a big part of that, just showing me all these things. And then of course, New Mexico in a lot of ways was, was a kind of, a kind of like knife to the side, right? Mm -hmm. Like work wasn't happening. Books were lost. Uh, there was a, there was a kind of strangeness about like, you know, money was an issue and all these things were an issue, but I had to drive a car. I had to drive a car. I, you know, like that. I'll have a life experience later. I'll have a story time where I talk about (laughs) driving around New Mexico Uh, with Claudio. Claudio, Yeah. (laughs) Just, uh, yeah. I mean, they, 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 let's just say there were a couple too many times where I forgot to go from reverse to drive. (laughs) And so Kai and I, Kai and I did these great sort of half block. (laughs) Wait, did you just have a permit and Kai was your adult (laughs) driver? No, no, no. I got my, I, I mean, if you want to hear a really, really kind of awful story about getting your driver's license, that's the one, that's the one that I got. It, it, it had more to do with just getting you. New Mexico is nuts. If you've never been to New Mexico, do yourself a favor and go and just realize that you, every time you drive a car out of a driveway, you are taking your life in your hands. I, I was in Albuquerque. It, it actually reminded me of being out of the country and driving out of yeah. the country. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's insane. You can't honk at anybody because everyone has a gun. <laughs> Most people are, seem to be drunk. Um, speed limits are a suggestion at best. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it's, Do not go under this speed. <laughs> <laughs> I know, basically. And it was just like, it, I mean, drive... I, for a while there, my entire Twitter feed was nothing but me like stopping off the side of the road and ranting about New Mexico drivers. You know, it was that kind of thing. And so the, all those, all that stuff together was, was, um, a kind of big eye opener. And, and again, it, it had to do with all these things about like actually just going out there and making work again. You know, I just to tie it back to the images, cause we could talk about my silly bad driving, which, which is less and less so now, but let's be frank, <laughs> it still continues. I am a new driver. Um, and so. 
just in, so I had gone to New Mexico, lost all these books, did all these things. I, I had already started photographing there. Yeah, but you immediately set up that studio. I or, did. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, the, the story of how we got the house is actually a really interesting one. We had decided to make the move. My partner went ahead uh, to stay with her aunt. Um, and so Robin, my partner, is there uh, with her aunt, and, and I come to do a visit. Her cousin is getting married. They're moving to a new house. And the husband says, you should look at the, at the garage. You might like it as a space. And I said, sure, I'll look at the garage of your, this house. This <laughs> yeah, whatever, house. buddy. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was just like, all right, whatever. Because they wanted us to maybe rent the house, right? And we were like, okay, sure. And we go back there. And it's full of boxes and there's stuff. And he goes, oh, and by the way, look at this. And he moves a box. And behind the, this box, this huge thing is like a sink with, with everything you can think of, right? And it... I just, I was like, yes, today, sign the lease. We're doing this now. And we just, we put the money down. So this was a former meth factory that... <laughs> you joke, you joke, but a couple blocks in any direction and that was actually what was going on there. No, the, the, the guy who we rented from was, um, was a graduate student at UNM and um, a long time ago. And then he had taught there for a while and this was his studio and his darkroom. Except these folks were musicians and so they used the darkroom to store boxes and to store old furniture. Um, so they, you know. It looked like a classic kind of setup out of uh, like a magazine from the 70s yeah. or something. They had, because there was the long sink and everything, but then there were those just endless supply of drawers, right? Yeah. Like these oh, incredible yeah. drawers and like all around. I mean, so Claudio started sending back these pictures to everyone in New York and, <laughs> and we're like, Wait a minute. Maybe yeah. maybe I should be moving I out know. to New Mexico. You is know, this what like, you? This what happens when you leave the yeah, Northeast? Yeah, exactly. Well, you instantly I, get an amazing spot. Well, I I remember sending. I can't remember who was I sent the message back, but I remember texting somebody and saying, "Hey, look at look at what look at what I got in my backyard," and just getting back a text message that just said, "Fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> and I and at that point, I figured I had made it because I was like, "Yes, if someone is this upset about it." it's it's good and uh so yeah i i I cleaned it out i vac you know new mexico is famous for the dust and the sand that blows everywhere and so Mm -hmm. it took a few days to mop it a bunch of times and vacuum it and get it together and those drawers were full of stuff and kind of get everything empty get everything set up get all the chemistry going it's a wooden sink that was painted you know Mm -hmm. with like um uh uh, i forget epoxy or something like that so and it was starting the new mexico climate if if, for those of you who have never been there it's high desert is you know most of the city is five thousand feet up and on top of that it's also it's it's also super dry and so during the day you know the joke is do you dress in the morning for winter or do you dress for the afternoon which is going to be summer and so as the day kind of goes back and forth the temperature fluctuates by anything between 20 degrees or more sometimes depending on the time of year. And so things just deteriorate and break and like like calcify and ossify. And it's just like a weird, weird place. But it had everything I needed to really work. Um, and so I cleaned it. I got it all set up. I, I um, mixed chemistry, did all these things. And then I was like, well, when, what am I shooting here? So when I had gone there and I had photographed, I had mostly photographed on Route 66 kind of going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, with my partner when we were driving around, a little bit up in the hills and a little bit um, uh, in the downtown area by the river. Uh, and I started looking at these photographs of the river. Uh, you know, uh, the Albuquerque is split in half by the Rio Grande. And so um, on the border of the Rio Grande, you know, going nor- uh, south, north to south, 
south to north, they have made it into this kind of amazing um, uh, national park. And there's something about that that when I heard about it sounded, you know, I can think of things like Central Park or you can think about a number of other places that that are kind of similar inside of a city. You know, uh, I mean, you know, again, I'm coming from New York, so I'm thinking Prospect Park. I'm thinking, thinking this kind of situation. And we started making trips down there and the place is wild. You know, you walk down there, you walk down to the water and yeah, there's places where people are just running and jogging and doing other things. And you go a couple more feet and and, you know. It's bog, it's it's swampy, it's like overgrown. Nobody's really taking care of it. And when they are taking care of it, they just they down trees and they cut them up and they just leave it there. And it, it happens to be this interesting kind of space where all of the kind of residents of the city um, come in and out, you know. So uh, there's a really large homeless population in New Mexico and in Albuquerque in specific because it's you know, 330 days of sun. Of sun, it's warm most of the year. You know, the the weather doesn't get really bad most of the time, and so um, there's a large population of folks who, when it starts to get dark, move into the park and set up tents and or set up sleeping bags because it's temperate and it's nice and cool there and then as the sun comes up people move out of there right um you walk around there and suddenly you'll find graffiti but it's graffiti on trees right because there aren't any walls or anything like that you'll see people basking in the sun you'll see people making love on the on the riverbank you'll see things like people you know going down on kayaks it's a it's a very strange place because it is not just about leisure it's in a real way, it's actually about survival for a lot of folks. You know, you go in there to hide, you go in there to, I mean, so many times I would be walking and suddenly I'd be in a really wild part of the park and I would move a bush or I'd jump over something and I would jump right into somebody's camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was something about that that started to draw me in and I started making these frequent kind of daily trips, just taking my camera and making pictures. At first, the edges of it, and then more and more and more going into the park itself, going into those places where I, you know, I'd, I'd walk in and two hours later, I'd be back out somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even at, to some points walking in when the river would be really low, walking not across it necessarily, depending on where you were, but definitely on the banks and all these kind of things. And documenting the things that I found, you know, detritus and camps and um, graffiti and down trees. And so there's there's an aspect of the work that where where I kind of saw it as as being in conversation with that essay called The Beautiful, the the Sublime and the Picturesque, or the Picturesque, the Beautiful and the Sublime. You know, this idea that you have these spaces that uh, due to our use of it. Uh, kind of go back and forth between being just picturesque, just pretty, just a place where you hang out, to being sublime where there's real terror that's part of it, right? It's like, what's behind this? What is the water going to sweep me away? What is this landscape doing? And then on top of that, there's, there's you know, there's been a lot of work, um, uh, you know, I think of like Michael Subanova's uh, or Miguel Subanova's uh, Casa de Campo is the name of the book. It's a Spanish photographer who photographed that huge park that's in Spain. It's in, I think it's in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on top of that, things like, you know, sleeping by the Mississippi, the idea that you can trace a river and kind of make pictures in and out of it. And so I started photographing there, making these very, f- not formal pictures, but definitely like beautiful, right? Like a, a very much in that idea of like landscape photography, but always where something was wrong where there was a kind of marker that this place was not bucolic, that this place was not easy. And so some of that had to do with camps and some of that had to do with um, uh, the garbage that was there and some of that had to do with, like alcoholism is a huge issue in New Mexico um, to the point where everywhere you walk, there are 
beer cans and, and, and little vodka bottles. I mean, it's a really, really huge problem, and the park is not immune to that. People go there to drink, and so on the banks are just these bottles everywhere, these uh, you know, needles and things like that as well. And here's this place that's gorgeous, right? It's like, it's wild. It has all these plants. It has all these animals. It has these like things that are endangered and being protected, but it's also really um, a th- kind of theater of the the what's wrong with the place. Yeah, I particularly remember, you know, the sun hitting it a certain way and everything just like poof glows. Yeah. All of a sudden it turns on. Yeah. It's, and you, you have these, you have the, uh, the cottonwood trees down there. You have all of these things that just make it a kind of magical place. And really when you walk in, that's what you think. It feels, it feels like the most beautiful parts of like, of like Central Park, you know, like the wilder parts of it. And, but then you're constantly, constantly, constantly reminded that this is not just a leisurely place. And it's, for me, that was really, really kind of eye opening that here was something that mirrored the city without necessarily having to do the same work that I was doing in Brooklyn, right? Which is going out into the city. And now this work is on your website. Yeah. And uh, is the title still under Bosque? Or, uh, or have it, you changed uh, it? I, it's it, titles for me are always a little bit liquid. Okay. Um, I, I'll admit that first. So if you go to my website, it might be different. Right now, it's called En el Bosque, which means in the forest. Okay. I might change that just to make it a little bit maybe more clear what it is that's happening in there. Mm. Um, and so that it's an ongoing project. It's it's what I've been photographing for the last year. I'm, I might go back. I'm trying to go back this summer and photograph some more. Ah, okay. So yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's in. Pro- I, I see myself really photographing these for at least a few more years. And I made a decision early on that I wasn't going to make portraits um, because I thought that that might tilt it too much in one direction or another, becoming about particular individuals. And so it really is a landscape project, which, again, I I haven't done. And and you said you're... You've been working on books now. You've been yeah. organizing books. So what you said, I think you mentioned three books. Yeah. So I, I have I have three books that are basically um, done, and I'm trying to shop them. I'm trying to see if I can get them published. One is uh, the Sodad work, which is the Brooklyn work. Um, another one is uh, it's based on this project, this uh, photographs that I took in the Dominican Republic, uh, and it's called Two Rivers. And so that one is is has been edited and is finished. But and that's not from your 2003 trip. It's no, later work. It's right? later. Yeah. yeah. So so um, just to kind of touch up touch upon that in 2012, right uh, right before I graduated from Columbia, um, I decided that I needed to get out of the city and to go elsewhere. And so um, I thought I would go back. I hadn't been back in over 10 years to the Dominican Republic and photograph. And I thought, well, here's the beginning of another project. Right. I tend to work long form. Um, everything takes a couple years for it to kind of like come together enough that I maybe could start editing something. And I went to the Dominican Republic and, you know, visited my father's family and we did all these kind of riding around and trips. But um, at that time, the, the economic situation in the Dominican Republic had taken a really bad turn. Uh, where we are in the eastern side of the country, the economy has been dollarized to a large degree. And so uh, with the economic downturn post-2008, you know, the dollar didn't have the same buying power. Everybody was trying to go to the euro. The place had been, you know, when I was a kid, the Dominican, in that it's very touristy in that area. And so, because the beaches, the best beaches are there. And so um, the place had been geared towards German and Spanish and French uh, uh, tourists, and they weren't coming. And so now it was geared towards Russian 
uh, tourists because they had all the buying power at the time. Mm. And so it was, it was wilder. It was more, there was more drugs and prostitution and all this other stuff that was really kind of nasty. And when I got there, I mean, the day I got there, my dad came and picked us up in his, in his, his little Jeep. And I had to sit in the back with a shotgun over my, over my legs because the idea was we're passing by this one point after the airport where they'll drive out and hit your car and pull guns on you and mug you and take all your stuff. And so we had to have a gun in case they thought, and my partner was with go. me. Yeah. yeah. And so that was a thing. And, and did you know how to fire the gun? I know how to fire a gun. I mean, I, I grew up in the Dominican Republic and, and you know, the, the best analogy is, is that for all intents and purposes, like Dominicans in the Dominican Republic and rednecks are not very different. <laughs> You know, like you, you, we, we have guns, we drive around with them in our cars. Everybody gets to shoot when they're, when they're really young. Like hunting is a real big thing. Okay. And, and so I, I know how to use one. It's, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't go out there guns blazing, but I know what, right. I know where, where to point the, the boomy end. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the hurt part of the, the gun. hurt part. of <laughs> That's good. That's perfect. Yeah. The sparky side. <laughs> Um, and so, and so we got there and I started photographing and it became really clear, really, really early on that the situation was very different. The last time I had gone in 2003, I basically could just go wherever I wanted. It wasn't that big a deal. Mm -hmm. And this time it was more like, no, you got to wait. And these are the photos in the two rivers and the two rivers project, which was all shot in 2012. And so I went there, I was there for two weeks and I photographed for two weeks the entire time making pictures of my father's side of the family thinking I'll be back in a few months and photograph again. Like I was really that adamant that I was gonna do that. And right when I was, I called back to say, by the way, I wanna go back, I wanna go photograph again, the answer that I got is, don't come. Wow. Hmm. It's too dangerous, there's too much going on. I mean, the day we left, the day we left Igwe to go to Santo Domingo, the city. Oh yeah, this is their bus trip. Right? Yeah, was... the bus trip. There had, there had been a strike, a bus strike, and they were stopping the buses by putting a car in front of it and the workers were grabbing rocks and just smashing the windows out wow. and people were getting hurt and our bus just barely missed this one bus that got like pelted and all this crazy stuff. So these it. were the, the unionized workers throwing rocks at, yeah, the, the, at, the, bus, at the scab drivers. At the scab drivers right. and that kind of thing. And so that, and that was only one of a few things that was going on at that time. You know, there were a number of other, uh, you know, huelgas is what they call them, right? The strikes. And there were, it was, it was insane. It was nuts. And so I called back like a month later or two months later saying, I want to come back at this point. And the answer was no. Wow. You can't come. It's too much. It's too crazy. And things have fluctuated back and forth. And, and there's also some other personal family stuff that's happened that has kind of kept me away from going there. But I made, I made this work, this really beautiful images, these things that I was really interested in. But they, you know, it's 2012 and now it's 2016. Uh, or at least in 2015, I was editing. I was starting to look at them and realizing I'm not going to go back and be able to make these same pictures. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. The place was different. Money, like we, the farm had been sold. All these things happened because the economy got so bad. Wow. So that's the second book. That's the second book. And What's the third one? The third book is is called, it's, the working title is Surplus City. Wow. And it's, um, so I had been working in the Bosque. I'm shooting with the Mamiya 7. You know, I'm doing these kind of beautiful 6-7, 100-speed film, if you want to get really dorky with it. Uh, <laughs> like gorgeous, large-scale, black-and-white photographs. Um, and I started getting a little bit antsy about making that kind of work. Like it was too perfect. It was this landscape work that I wasn't, I had never done before. And so I thought, well, and I had just gotten the job at Hampshire College. And so I had a few weeks before I moved. And they, um, I thought to myself, well, what can I do in these last few weeks 
um, to kind of get a sense of the city before I go because I know I'm not going to be back for a while. Um, and my partner's dad, um, uh, Doug, he came out with this box that he had in the garage that had just found it. Her parents moved to New Mexico to retire. And so he came out with this box and it had a bunch of um, uh, Minolta SRTs and it had all these other little cameras, but it also had a, ni- a Canon Sure Shot from 1983. This little tiny point and shoot camera, you can't control anything, autofocus is who knows what the hell is happening. <laughs> the only thing I could change was the ISO. And there was a part of me that said, yeah, fuck yeah, I need something where I don't even have to think about it. It's completely automatic. And let me just go out there and react and carry it on my little wrist strap and just have it be this extension of, of whatever it is that I'm doing. And so I gave myself a very strict 20 rolls because that was the only, it was, I had about a month left and I knew that that was going to be about what I was going to be able to shoot. So 20 rolls um, uh, photographing just in Albuquerque. So anytime I would go out and walk the dog, go food shopping, go to a school, do anything else, I was there making pictures, making pictures, making pictures. And then when I came back, I started editing this work. And that, so that's turned out to be this little small five by seven chat book of, of images. I'm actually really excited about, it's much more playful in terms of editing and in terms of sequencing. Mm. Um, it kind of plays with, with this grid of images, right? So f- uh, up to four images on a spread. Um, and so it, it, it's very much a kind of, uh, and I am using the text from the website, so you'll read this again. It's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of capricious portrait of the place. You know, I'm walking around making these pictures that are part funny, part sad, part sardonic, and then also part you know, pathetic in, in a very, very direct way. Like there's just kind of strange pictures about this place, which is very, very strange where all these cultures come together where Spanish, Indian and, and Mexican are coming together. And so the, the book kind of goes back and forth between these images of these acid kind of nuclear skies and then what I found on the streets, right? From beer bottles and cans to graffiti to like discarded clothes to all these houses that say NSRS on it, which means not safe for residency, which if you see any, any, any of that anywhere, it means that the place is, um, was a meth, they cooked meth in there, so you can't live inside that house mm-hmm. anymore. And so, Thanks. you know, yeah, it's, it's intense. It's kind of intense, but, but the book does have a bit of a, f- I wouldn't say funny, but there's certainly, and I, I don't also want to use the word ironic, but there is something about it that is that is tongue in cheek, maybe to the point where you bleed a little. Mm. You know, is the way that I would put it. A little bit of wit to it. Yeah, a little bit of wit to it. Just a kind of like a re- recognizing the absurdity of the Southwest and particularly Albuquerque and the kind of place that it is. Well, to to bring us up to date, then you, you know, uh, your partner Robin got this job and brought you out to New Mexico, and then you wound up not finding work there, and then now you sort of reverse the tables and said all right i've got to find something so you started looking for teaching jobs anywhere basically right yeah and uh and then why don't you tell us you got this uh, great job at hampshire college just started last fall right yeah so we got to a point in new mexico where things started to become a little dire um you know we were (laughs) you started like planning where your camp was going to be basically no seriously i mean that was the one thing i just i just kept thinking to myself uh, you know uh at a certain point, we got to start thinking about what's going to happen next, right? And so I started I started to really desperately look for work anywhere that I could find it. I, I applied for a job in, in Sonoma County in California. I applied for a job in like Atlanta. I applied for a job in New Jersey. I applied for everywhere. I mean, I was looking everywhere. And I got this interview at Hampshire College, um, and that went well. Um, and I was given this job. And so I just started um, this past uh, August. Um, and it's a 2-2 course load, so I teach two classes a year. 
Um, oh, I'm so sorry, semester. four classes a year, yeah. two classes a semester, and I do advising um, constantly, and I'm also part of these divisional uh, committees, so it's it's a kind of graduate almost situation where students are just making work for the whole year mm-hmm. to get ready for thesis exhibitions, and it's a it's an amazing place, you know, it's 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 a no grade situation, it's a little it's a, it's a very very different kind of engagement with that stuff. The students are really really smart. Um, and, and I've been teaching, uh, I've been lucky that I, one of the classes that I got to teach this year was a book class. And so all of these things that I've been kind of doing for the last two years in terms of putting books together in a really kind of specific and pointed way, I, I taught them. And, you know, a lot of that comes from Tom's pro- uh, process, which yeah, is photo like, three. yeah, photo three in terms of the editing and putting things together. But then with a little bit, with a little bit of an eye towards what's happening in terms of the photo book now. I mean, we happen to be living in this really strange moment where the photo book has this real primacy that it didn't have for the longest time, where it's shifted the idea of what it is for someone to make images in terms of sequencing and in terms of putting things together. They're getting really, really great. They're, they're, they play with history, they play with fiction, they play with like documentary work. Uh, you know, I can think of all these folks like Ron Jude or Christian Patterson or, or um, uh, you know, the idea even that you can make books that are digital. You know, someone like, uh, I believe the guy's name is Christopher Anderson's book Capitolio became like this big hit. There's all these things that are happening. And then on top of that, this is explosion of small presses, DIY, self-publishing, you know, think of someone like Matt Ike who, who uh, put his work out, uh, Carry Me Ohio, as a blurb book and sold it out and then was able to get that printed, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing that now we have this facility to actually make physical books. And I think that that goes with, the, with, that, with that kind of wave, of that kind of retro wave that we've hit over the last few years in terms of people being interested in film again, but also being interested in these physical uh, manifestations of the medium. You know, from from like playing vinyl records to to the photo book, this idea that that just because something can be reproduced digitally, that it doesn't have the same effect. And it really doesn't when you start to look at it. And so the idea of flipping pages and how one image connects to another and how you could create stories that are not fictions, but they're also not really the truth in a way that it's just not possible on the wall it's, it's so exciting, and it, it's it's this thing that I'm really, really like, just deeply, deeply into. That, that, yeah, I was gonna say that is something you've met, you mentioned on uh, I think your website a couple times the the idea of of fiction and truth. Uh, you have a blog. You call yourself the unreliable. Yeah, the unreliable narrator. Narrator. This this whole idea of documentary and truth is something you you think about. Yeah, it you know it for the longest time the the truth value of photography for me was what held sway. This idea that I was making that I was that this was witness, right? That it was that you couldn't argue it, and and it's and more over the years that has shifted to not the idea that that this is somehow a document, right? That it's the real thing, but that as a point of view, it actually. It lies on a spectrum in terms of what is true and what isn't. And I think that once I kind of came to that realization, or at least like internalized it, then the idea that, yeah, I'm making work that is in a documentary style, right, to quote Walker Evans, but and that there are things that are facts in the picture, but in the way that images um, come together and bump up against each other on a page, the reality is, is that you're being shifted in all these kinds of ways that aren't true, that aren't really uh, based on, or that don't necessarily need to be based on something that's like that, where it's it's truth with the big T, where there's where metaphor can really play, right? Where there can be allegory between images, or or in the whole book, or where even you lead us 
you know, suggestively lead us into, into thinking about what something means without necessarily having to have the picture captioned underneath. Um, and I think the photo book, more than the wall, has this really interesting way of, of creating a whole world that can hold ideas that go beyond the pictures themselves, right? So the, the interesting thing is that there's, there's what you intend, there's what the pictures say, which may or may not completely agree with what it is that you intend, and then the book becomes this other thing, right? And it's not that you lose control of it, but it becomes a third thing. It's a, it's a different engagement. And so for me, the, right now, I'm, I'm more, much more interested in the idea of handing someone a book with 100 pictures and seeing where they go and seeing what they think of it and how things move back and forth than I am in, let's say, putting up a big picture on the wall and like saying, like, this is what this is about. Yeah. I think that there's just much more. There's more meat there. That sounds like a great place to end. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Claudio, thank you so very much for uh, being here with us on Marble Hill right before the, you're going to give your presentation. Uh, yeah, in a few minutes. In a few minutes downstairs. And now we've got you all wound up for it, hopefully. Right. Well, yeah. thank Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was great. <laughs>